Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. The Six Wives of Henry VIII were two of the first history videos I did when I was starting out. I have been fascinated with the stories of Catherine and Jane and Catherine and Catherine again since I was a little girl. We moved to England when I was eight years old, and I got to tour a lot of castles and historic sites. I remember my parents buying me a set of six chocolates, each with a painting of one of Henry's wives on the front and a brief biography on the back. I have a vivid memory of carefully removing the wrappers so that I could eat the chocolate and still keep the wrappers to reread the scant facts of those women's lives. Since then, I've come to see these six women as the cultural icons they are. There have been countless books, movies, and a musical about them, and yet I still long to know more about who they really were. And so, without further ado, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, Part 1 Henry VIII is one of the most famous kings in English history. He is renowned for his voracious appetites for food, wine, power, and women. During his 38-year reign, he went through six wives, and for them triggered seismic changes in the religious and political landscape of the nation. But who were the women for which this larger-than-life monarch's passion ran hot and cold? And who were they before, and in some cases after, their fates were in the hands of this fearsome king? Here are the stories of the six wives of Henry VIII. Catherine of Aragon Catalina was born near Madrid on the night of December 16, 1485. She was the daughter of Isabel I of Castile and Fernando II of Aragon. The power couple who set in motion the unification of Spain began the Spanish Inquisition and launched Christopher Columbus's expedition to the New World. The princess grew up with the influence of her powerful mother and learned how to be a queen. If you haven't already, check out my video on Isabel I of Castile. Catalina was the baby of the family. She had one older brother and three older sisters who were all queens. Isabel, Queen of Portugal, Juana, Queen of Castile and Aragon, check out her video here, and Maria, Queen of Portugal. The daughters were well-educated in multiple disciplines, including literature, history, music, needlepoint, cooking, and of course, the Catholic religion. Catalina spoke several languages and loved to read. At the age of three, she was betrothed to Prince Arthur, heir to the English throne. They were an excellent political match, as in addition to her powerful Spanish family, she was a descendant of King Edward III of England via his Lancaster descendants, so her blood would bring legitimacy to the fledgling Tudor dynasty. Their son would have had an indisputable right to the English throne in the eyes of European royalty. At 16, the princess traveled to England to marry her 15-year-old betrothed. Her large retinue of Spanish attendants included several African servants. The English were impressed by the princess's wealth and powerful family. Catalina, who would be called Catherine in her new country, was short in stature and had long red hair, fair skin, and wide blue eyes. Remarkably, despite the long-standing betrothal, Catherine had never been taught to speak English. 
She and Arthur had written to each other in Latin, but when they met in person, they found that their pronunciations were very different, and they struggled to communicate. But Catherine was a fast learner and soon picked up the language of her new home. The teenage couple married at Old St. Paul's Cathedral on November 14, 1501. It is not clear what happened on their wedding night, and this uncertainty would later become a major issue to both Catherine and England. When Arthur left their bedroom the next morning, he loudly proclaimed his need for water as he had spent the night in Spain, adding that being a husband was thirsty work. The newlyweds traveled to Ludlow Castle, Arthur's seat as Prince of Wales. The castle was damp and cold, and a few months into the marriage, both royals contracted the sweating sickness. Arthur died, and Catherine recovered to find herself a widow with an unclear future. Both her father and her father-in-law, King Henry VII, claimed it was the other's duty to support the Dowager Princess. So the once glamorous lady lived hand to mouth and had to dismiss many of her servants and sell her jewelry for food. Henry VII wanted to keep her large dowry and considered marrying the teenage princess himself, but Catherine's father refused. And he dragged his feet on the offer for her to marry Arthur's younger brother, Henry, as he didn't want to pay the remainder of her dowry. There was also the issue of getting a dispensation from the Pope, as canon law forbade a man to marry his brother's widow. But Catherine swore that she and Arthur had never slept together, which made their marriage invalid in the eyes of the church. In 1504, Isabel of Castile died, and Catherine lost not only her mother, but a powerful ally. During this time of uncertainty, Catherine held the position of Spanish ambassador and was the first female ambassador in Europe. The English king and his counselors may have thought the young princess would be easy to manipulate, but they were mistaken. After seven years in limbo, Henry VII died, and his son became King Henry VIII. The teenage monarch was infatuated with the attractive and worldly widow. He wasted no time and married Catherine in a private ceremony at Greenwich Palace. Catherine went instantly from a dour and dubious destiny to a secure, happy, and glittering future. Two weeks later, the new king and queen were crowned together on Midsummer's Day in Westminster Abbey. The coronation and celebrations that followed were lavish, and banners bore the intertwining letters of their names, H and K. Catherine took the pomegranate as her emblem, a fruit which grows prodigiously in Spain and bears bountiful seeds, representing the abundant offspring she was sure she would bear the king. Catherine made a good impression and was well-liked by the people. Henry, the handsome and athletic new king, was just 18, five years Catherine's junior, but he was very much in love with his intelligent and confident new bride. They were quite happy together in the beginning. The queen became pregnant almost immediately after the wedding, and Henry wrote to his father-in-law, King Fernando, of his joy and certainty that Catherine would bear him a son and heir. Seven months after the wedding, Catherine miscarried a daughter. The couple kept their tragedy very quiet and were confident that they had plenty of time to have more children. A year later, on New Year's Day, Catherine gave birth to a son, Henry, Duke of Cornwall. The birth of the new heir was celebrated throughout the country. Bells were rung and fountains filled with wine. But the baby died after just 52 days of life from an intestinal malady. Naturally, his parents were devastated. 
Henry spent a lavish sum on the funeral of his firstborn son, who was buried in Westminster Abbey. In 1513, to escape his sorrows and prove his virility, Henry decided to go to war in France, and he appointed Catherine regent while he was away. During her regency, King James IV of Scotland invaded northern England, and Catherine, heavily pregnant, rode north in full armor at the head of the army. She gave a stirring speech and won the Battle of Flodden Field, defeating the Scots. King James was killed in battle, and Catherine sent her husband the Scottish king's blood-soaked cloak, along with a letter giving him all the credit for her victory. But his wife's success roiled Henry, who was taking a serious beating in France and had to return home in defeat. A few days after her battlefield victory, Catherine went into premature labor and delivered a stillborn son. The next year, another stillbirth followed. At 30, Catherine's prayers were finally answered and she gave birth to a healthy child. However, Henry was disappointed that it was a daughter, Mary not the son he had hoped for. Catherine made pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Frideswide to pray for a healthy baby boy, but her sixth and seventh pregnancies also ended tragically. As time passed, Catherine focused on the prospects of her one living child, Mary, and encouraged her education. The queen donated to several colleges and made education for women fashionable in England. But Henry still felt that a male heir was essential for cementing his fledgling Tudor dynasty. The last time a queen had attempted to rule England, Matilda, some 400 years earlier, she lost the throne amid civil war. Despite his disappointment, Henry still had great respect for his wife's wisdom and diplomatic skill. Her nephew, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, came for a state visit, and Catherine urged Henry to ally himself with Charles and betroth their only daughter to him. After the visit, the couple went to the Field of Cloth of Gold, a summit in France with King Francis I. The two royal families got to know each other and alliances were made. Four-year-old Mary was betrothed to the two-year-old Dauphin Francis. The two kings even competed in a wrestling match, which Henry lost. But two years later, the alliance fell apart, war was declared with France yet again, and Princess Mary was instead betrothed to her cousin, Emperor Charles V. During Catherine's many grievous pregnancies, Henry philandered to his heart's content with numerous ladies, fathering at least one illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. After 16 years of marriage, Catherine entered menopause, and Henry transferred his dynastic ambitions to a certain lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. It was suggested to Catherine that she quietly retire to a nunnery to make room for Anne, but the queen refused. Henry obsessed over a biblical passage from Leviticus, which stated that it was a sin to marry your brother's widow, and that such a couple would be childless. He pleaded with Pope Clement VII for an annulment, but the Pope was under siege from the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, Catherine's nephew, so he was under pressure to refuse the English king's request. Catherine asked that the legitimacy of the marriage be tried in public court before the Pope's representative. She proclaimed in a stirring speech to the court that her marriage to Prince Arthur had never been consummated and was therefore unlawful. She put it to Henry that she had been a true maid when she first came to their marriage bed, 
and that she had always been a true, loving, and obedient wife. The Pope declined to dissolve the marriage, and Henry, unused to being disagreed with, was humiliated and furious. So the king used the Protestant movement to make himself head of a new Church of England. He dissolved the monasteries and enriched himself by looting their wealth, much to the horror of the devout Catherine. In 1531, Catherine was banished from court, and her rooms were given to Anne Boleyn. In her exile, she confined herself to a single room, leaving only for mass. She wore a scratchy hair shirt next to her skin, traditional for pilgrims and penitents, and fasted constantly. Cruelly, Henry forbade Catherine and their daughter Mary from seeing each other, but sympathetic servants secreted letters between mother and daughter. In 1533, Henry married Anne and made her queen, though many at court and most throughout the country disliked the new consort and the new Protestant regime. They still had a deep love for Catherine and felt that she had been terribly mistreated. Henry VIII was not one to be crossed and forced his courtiers to swear the oath of supremacy that Henry was the one supreme head of the church and that his marriage to Catherine and their daughter Mary were illegitimate. Those who refused to swear were executed. This included Henry's chancellor, Thomas More, who was beheaded and later became a Catholic saint. Henry offered Catherine and Mary better accommodations and permission to see each other if they would swear the oath of supremacy, but both refused. Catherine went to her death calling herself the king's one true wife. She died at the age of 50. Her post-mortem revealed a black growth on her heart, which launched rumors that Anne had had her predecessor poisoned. However, medical historians believe the heart's discoloration was actually a sign of cancer. Anne and Henry both wore yellow after they received the news of Catherine's death, which was seen as a vulgar insult to the late queen although it may have been a tribute, as yellow is a traditional color of mourning in Spain. Henry did not attend the funeral of his first wife, and he forbade their daughter Mary to attend as well. The jilted queen was laid to rest in Peterborough Cathedral. But why did Catherine suffer so many calamitous miscarriages and stillbirths? Historians have put forth a few theories Catherine, a fervent Catholic, often fasted for religious reasons, and she believed that pregnancy was no excuse to neglect her devotion. Her compulsive fasting may even be classified as anorexia. Forgoing food is certainly not healthy for a growing fetus, and most religious leaders then and now advise against fasting while pregnant. It is also theorized that Henry carried the gene from a cloud syndrome, a neurological disorder which affects movement and occurs almost exclusively in males. This might be why his first two wives only delivered healthy daughters, but doesn't quite explain why his mistress and his third wife did give him healthy sons. In the end, the gynecological tragedies that caused Catherine's downfall and the destruction of the English church most likely came down to the poor hygiene and the lack of medical knowledge of the time. Catherine certainly wasn't unique in her anguish. Infant mortality was very high and most mothers lost babies and children. She was cruelly mistreated by her husband and was the first of six women to marry him and have their fates twisted in his hands.
but she held steadfast to her faith and her resolve. Her only child, who later became Queen Mary I, was cut from the same cloth, though she too was destined to have a tragic life. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Anne Boleyn. Anne's early life is somewhat of a mystery. Her birthday is unknown, and even the year of her birth is debated. Most historians believe she was born in 1501, but some argue that she entered the world as late as 1507. Her sister Mary was definitely older, but it is unclear if Anne or her brother George came next. The Boleyn family was well-respected among the aristocracy. They were distant descendants of King Edward I, and more recently a Lord Mayor of London. The children were born at the Boleyn family estate, Blickling in Norfolk, but raised much closer to London at Hever Castle in Kent. Anne's parents were Thomas Boleyn, Earl of Wiltshire, and Lady Elizabeth Howard, also from a prominent family. Her father was a talented diplomat and was sent to the Holy Roman Empire as an ambassador. There, he so impressed the emperor's daughter, Margaret of Austria, that she offered his 12-year-old daughter Anne an honored position as lady-in-waiting. Anne traveled to the Netherlands to attend Margaret, who ruled there as regent. Up to this point, Anne's education had been typical of an English aristocratic girl of her generation. She was instructed by her mother in history, reading, writing, and arithmetic. She learned domestic skills including dancing, embroidery, manners, household management, music, and singing. Once Anne arrived in Austria, her education was greatly expanded under Duchess Margaret's tutelage. Margaret was an incredibly intelligent, powerful, and progressive woman for her time. She introduced young Anne to early Enlightenment philosophy, feminist ideas, and most significantly, Protestant Reformation. Margaret was impressed with her charming, bright, and mature new ward, whom she called Le Petite Boulin. She wrote to Anne's father, thanking him for doing her the favor of sending a young lady so presentable and so pleasant, considering her youthful age. After 18 months with Margaret, Anne was given an even more prestigious position as maid of honor to King Henry VIII's sister, Mary, who was about to wed King Louis XII of France. But Mary's marriage only lasted three months before King Louis died of gout and Mary returned to England. Anne stayed in France to serve the next queen, 15-year-old Claude. Anne's older sister Mary briefly joined her at the French court. Fair Mary was considered the more beautiful of the sisters, while Anne was the more astute. It was rumored that Mary conducted affairs with several men, including King Francois I. 
Thomas Boleyn sent Mary back to England to be wed, where she commenced an affair with King Henry VIII, and gave birth to two children who might have been his. Meanwhile, Anne remained at the sophisticated French court for seven years, where she gained knowledge of art, dance, fashion, music, poetry, and the flirtatious art of courtly love. Rumors later plagued Anne that she had learned a variety of unmentionable sexual tricks in France, which she used to ensnare King Henry VIII. But in reality, she lived a fairly sheltered life in Queen Cloud's inner circle. She spent most of her time cloistered away caring for the queen during her seven back-to-back -back pregnancies, and wouldn't have had much time for love affairs. Anne did, however, become friends with King Francois' sister, Marguerite de Navarre, an outspoken humanist, evangelical reformer, and remarkably for a woman of the time, an author. The princess encouraged Anne in her growing convictions supporting Protestant church reform. At 21, Anne was called back to England for an arranged marriage to an Irish cousin, James Butler. The union was intended to settle a dispute over which side of the Boleyn family would inherit the earldom of Ormond and dampen a potential Irish civil war. Her father put a halt to the matrimonial negotiations as it became clear that he could get a much better match for his alluring second daughter. He secured her a coveted position as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine of Aragon. Anne made her debut at the court of Henry VIII while dancing in a pageant. She played the part of Perseverance in the elaborately choreographed production. In her white satin gown embroidered with gold thread, she caught the eye of many men at court. Anne had dark hair and eyes, olive skin, and a slender figure. Contemporary reports disagree on her beauty, but are unanimous that her true attraction lie in her dazzling wit, humor, and magnetism. With exceptional skill in dancing, singing, lute playing, perfect French, deafness in games of cards and chess, and a love of hunting, horseback riding, and a good joke, Anne was a joy to be around and quickly became the social star of court. Her French style was the envy of all the ladies, and she popularized wearing the French hood, which revealed a shocking amount of hair. Many young men vied for her affection, and she became secretly engaged to Henry Percy, son of the Earl of Northumberland. A marriage to Percy would have been quite a coup for Anne and her family. Northumberland was a more powerful seat than theirs, and becoming a countess would have afforded Anne a good deal of power and influence. Plus, she and Henry actually fancied each other, a real rarity among noble marriages of the time. But his father objected and the match was called off. Anne soon caught the eye of an even bigger player, King Henry himself. Unlike other ladies, including her own sister, who had gone quickly to Henry's bed, Anne resisted the king's advances and refused to become his mistress. At one point, she escaped court and returned home to avoid the amorous monarch. There he sent her several letters begging her to return to him. He signed off one missive, wishing myself especially of an evening in my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty duckies, 16th century slang for breasts, I trust shortly to kiss. Historians hotly debate Anne's motivations. Was she playing a coquettish game, putting Henry off in the hopes of enticing him to leave his wife and make her queen? Or was it more of a medieval Me Too situation? 
Was she protecting herself from the king's boorish advances in the hopes of preserving her reputation for a more realistic marriage to a respectable nobleman? Either way, it was pretty dangerous to say no to King Henry VIII, and eventually Anne agreed to marry him. At this point, Henry had been married to Queen Catherine of Aragon for 17 years. Catherine had become pregnant several times during their marriage, but had lost her children to miscarriage and infant mortality. She and Henry had but one living child, a daughter, Princess Mary. The only previous time a woman had inherited the throne of England was Empress Matilda in the 12th century, and she had been ousted by civil war. Henry's own father, Henry VII, had become king only after winning the War of the Roses, a dispute over the crown between cousins. Henry VIII became obsessed with the desire for a male heir to follow him and secure the Tudor dynasty. As Catherine, and Henry for that matter, entered middle age, it became clear that the couple would never have a son together. When the teenage Catherine first arrived from Spain, it was as the bride of Henry's older brother Arthur, who died a few months into the marriage. Henry fixated over a biblical passage from Leviticus, which stated that it was a sin to marry your brother's widow, and that such a couple would be childless. Henry was sure that he could swap Catherine for Anne in a matter of months. He asked the Pope for an annulment and asked his wife to step aside and move to a convent so that he could remarry. But the king was shocked and enraged when both refused his request. Catherine maintained that her marriage to Prince Arthur had never been consummated and was therefore invalid. And the Pope was currently under siege by Catherine's nephew, Emperor Charles V of Spain, so had little choice but to come down on Catherine's side. Thus ensued seven years of legal battles with Catherine and unconsummated courtship with Anne. Anne, too, was frustrated. She was approaching 30, middle-aged by 16th century standards, and wanted to be married before her childbearing days were behind her. During this time, the gravitational pull at court shifted, putting Anne in the center and Queen Catherine on the outskirts. Henry created his intended Marquess of Pembroke in her own right and gave her significant power and influence. Anne was devoted to the idea of Protestant reform of the church and was known to have supported many evangelicals and the publication of the Bible in English. She encouraged the king to pursue reform of the English church as a means to secure a divorce. Henry decided to split with Rome and declare himself head of the new Church of England. This way he could grant himself a divorce. He required his subjects to swear an oath, proclaiming him as the absolute religious authority in the land and recognizing Anne as the rightful queen. Those who refused were sentenced to death. Devout Catholics saw Anne as the enemy and accused her of using witchcraft to ensnare the king. Years after her death, some tried to discredit Anne's Protestant daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, with claims that Anne had six fingers, a sure sign of a witch. In November 1532, after a triumphant trip to France to secure an alliance with Anne's old friend, King Francois I, and with a divorce now all but inevitable, Anne finally went to bed with the king. The couple were married in a secret ceremony, which technically made the king a bigamist, but couldn't wait as Anne was already pregnant. 
The exact date of this wedding is unknown, and it may have been backdated to secure the legitimacy of Anne's child. The divorce was finalized in May, and in June, visibly pregnant, Anne was crowned Queen of England in a magnificent ceremony at Westminster Abbey. St. Edward's crown, which had previously only been worn by monarchs, was placed on her head. This may have been done to symbolically also crown her unborn child, which both she and Henry were confident would be the next king of England. In September, Anne gave birth to a healthy child. But to Henry's consternation, he had another daughter, Elizabeth. Despite their disappointment, the couple were happy and very much in love at the time, secure in the hopes that other children of the male persuasion would follow. As was royal tradition, baby Elizabeth was sent to live away from court with her own household to care for her. But her mother Anne loved her very much, visited her often, and planned to play a large role in her education as a Protestant princess. As queen, Anne indulged her love of fashion and spent lavishly on gowns, jewels, headdresses, ostrich feather fans, and renovating various palaces to her tastes. But she also gave generously to the poor and continued to support the education of reformist scholars. She bore the brunt of the blame and hatred for her husband's tyrannical government and was also disliked for her own inability to quickly produce a male heir. She was known by her enemies as the king's whore. Anne suffered a miscarriage during the Christmas festivities of 1534, and Henry's eye began to wander. Catherine of Aragon died at the age of 50. When Henry and Anne learned the news, they dressed in yellow from head to foot. It is unclear if this was crude gloating over the former queen's demise or done in her honor as yellow is a traditional color of mourning in Spain. Anne sent overtures of friendship and reconciliation to Catherine's daughter Mary, but was rebuffed as the princess hated the mistress who had taken her mother's place, and even suspected Anne of having had Catherine poisoned, though this is very unlikely. Catherine's death was hardly good news for Anne's place as queen. With his well-connected royal wife out of the picture, if the king wanted, he could easily dispose of his disappointing English wife and remarry. He had already begun an affair with one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, Jane Seymour. Henry gave Jane a locket, and when Queen Anne saw it, she ripped it from Jane's neck so violently that her hands bled. Increasing strife in the royal marriage, partly due to Anne's refusal to ignore the king's philandering, caused Henry to resent his wife. Luckily, Anne soon found herself pregnant again, and clung to the hope that the birth of a son would salvage her marriage and position. During a jousting match, King Henry was struck and fell from his horse. He was unconscious for two hours and everyone feared the worst. He recovered but suffered a leg wound that plagued him for the rest of his life, ending his athleticism and allowing him to pile on weight. Historians hypothesize he actually sustained a serious concussion and brain damage that would explain his hair-triggered temper from then on, though he certainly showed signs of psychopathy and borderline personality disorder well before the injury. The shock of the accident also caused Anne to miscarry her child. This sad event was the nail in her coffin. 
Anne's enemies at court, particularly Lord Chamberlain Thomas Cromwell, gathered or created evidence against her. Musician Mark Smeaton confessed under torture that he had slept with the Queen, and named four other men in his testimony, whom he accused of having adulterous affairs with Anne. They included the King's best friend, Henry Norris, as well as Anne's own brother, George Boleyn. Cromwell brought his case to the King, who was only too happy to believe it. After two and a half years of marriage, Anne was arrested and brought to the Tower of London. Henry declared that he had been bewitched into marrying Anne and quickly moved Jane Seymour into Anne's apartments. Queen Anne was tried in court for adultery, incest, and treason, all of which she was almost certainly guiltless of. She pled her innocence and begged her husband for mercy, but Henry had decided that he was done with the woman he had once moved heaven and earth to marry. While in the tower waiting to die, Anne spent her final days coming to terms with her mortality. She composed the poem, O Death, Rock Me Asleep, and was stoic to the end. The five men accused alongside Anne, including her own beloved brother, George, were beheaded on Tower Hill in sight of her room. Two days later, she was brought to Tower Hill for her own execution. The punishment for her crimes was burning at the stake, but Henry, ever generous, commuted her sentence to beheading and hired an expert swordsman from France to do the job far more quickly and less painfully than a clumsy axe. On the scaffold, Anne gave a moving speech to the crowd and knelt before the swordsman with dignity. The fallen queen's body was placed in an arrow box. She was buried in an unmarked grave in the Tower of London's chapel. Anne's remains were later identified when the chapel was renovated in 1876. She did not have six fingers. Her final resting place is now identified on the marble floor. Within days of Anne's murder, Henry married wife number three, Jane Seymour. She gave him his longed-for male heir, the future King Edward VI. But despite Anne's tragic end, she got the last laugh. For it was not Henry's son who became a famously spectacular sovereign, but Anne's daughter, Elizabeth. In the next episode, we'll meet wives three through six, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be putting out new episodes each Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos. Thank you for listening.